it is one of the cool feelings in science where you know when you've done that, you are looking at something that nobody else has ever seen before. It always pushes you to, to, to make further discoveries. Welcome back to The First 16. I'm Sarah Boivin-Chabot. And I'm Kirk Finken. Today's episode is going to blow your agricultural socks off. We're dealing with that eternal, huge, double-sided challenge, disease management in crops and saving nutrients in the food cycle. That's a big challenge. And where are we finding the answer? In the smallest possible molecules, we're talking about enzymes. An enzyme is a protein that exists in all living organisms, plants, animals, microorganisms. They're the workhorse molecules, nanomachines. They speed up the rate of virtually all chemical reactions in cells. In the simplest term, they help convert one chemical into another. They're like molecular change agents. We spoke with one of our researchers who specializes in enzymes. He's using enzymes to detoxify disease-infected corn. He's working on a project that will potentially have huge ramifications for corn producers, ethanol producers, and livestock producers. There are still a few years to go in the project, but they've made some important breakthroughs. This is novel applied science that is happening here in the labs at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. Sarah, are you ready? Get out your X-ray crystallographic diffractometer. Oh yeah, I've got mine turned on. My name's Chris Garnham. I'm a research scientist at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in London, Ontario, and you're listening to The First 16. Chris Garnham and his team have been working with industrial partners in the ethanol industry. Before we actually get into speaking with Chris, I think we need a, like a bit of a crash course in ethanol, even before we talk about enzymes, because I think this is going to get a little complicated otherwise. I think you're right. Ethanol is a biofuel made with corn. It's essentially like making alcohol. The majority of corn grown in southern Ontario is grown for bioethanol. And the byproduct of making ethanol is a delightful mash of corn that still holds a lot of nutrients. It's called dried distillers grains with soluble, or DDGS. That byproduct is fed mostly to pigs, so it's a very valuable byproduct. It's actually essential to the financial viability of the production of ethanol. And... It is those nutrients that need to stay in the food cycle. The problem arises, though, when you have disease-infected corn. There's a certain type of fungus that infects corns, Fusarium. That fungus is really cheeky. It creates its own protective armor in the form of a mycotoxin. But it has something even more special going on with its enzymes. I'll let Chris explain. What we identified was different strains of Aspergillus niger, which is a type of fungus uh, which typically will grow on dead or decaying organic matter. This fungus, it produces humonocins, which it uses as kind of a survival tool because it allows it to, to or I guess, break down the, the host on which it's growing. But how do some of these fungi survive the toxic effects of their own toxins? What we think we've potentially identified is, is a self-protection mechanism for this particular uh, species of, of fungus, which is Aspergillus niger, where it can not only make 
its own toxin that allows it to, or I guess enhances its survival out um, in the wild. But it also produces an enzyme that is capable of detoxifying this toxin so that it is no longer toxic to itself. When we hear the words toxins and mycotoxins, it's normal for alarm bells to go off. Important to note that mycotoxins are naturally occurring. They are produced by certain molds or fungi that grow on a variety of crops. And they've been a part of the natural world way before humans appeared on the scene. Chris did remind us that we have a very robust safety system in Canada to make sure that these toxins don't get into the food and feed. If these toxins are found in a certain concentration, then the food is destroyed. This is exactly why his research is important. I think I get it. The fungus creates a mycotoxin that kills or contaminates the host, and in this case, the corn. And the fungus also has this enzyme that protects itself against its own toxin. It's brilliant. But listen to how it fits into the solution. You know, this has kind of opened up some new research windows for us in trying to understand different types of, of protection mechanisms that these fungi have against their own toxins. And so we were fortunate enough to, to identify what we think is one protection mechanism in this one fungus, and it's, and it's enzymatic in nature, which is very interesting you know, to me because I'm interested in, in the biochemistry and, and understanding how proteins function at the molecular level. But it has that added benefit of when it is an enzyme in, in, in terms of being applicable to um, solving contamination problems of food and feed that might have fumonisins in it. How do you figure out how they work? It's kind of like anything in life where if you understand the structure of something, you get a much better understanding about how that thing functions. You know, say with even a shoe, if you have a shoe and, and you had no prior knowledge about what that shoe did, you could at least infer some potential function for that shoe just based on its overall structure. You know, you can see, well, it's in the shape of a foot. Uh, on the underside, there's kind of some rubber that's going to allow it to, to have some traction against a, a surface that you're potentially walking over. So it's the same thing when it comes to the enzymes. And if you can understand the structure of that enzyme at the molecular level, it really gives you a, a, a very solid understanding about how it functions. I like the shoe analogy. So you go to figure out the structure of the enzyme or the protein. Understanding the structure of a protein can be uh, a very laborious process sometimes, and it's a lot of trial and error. Uh, but when you finally do uh, solve, solve the structure of it, uh, it's kind of that eureka moment where, um, you know, what, what was previously all blurry is now uh, in kind of crystal clear resolution. So it's almost like with, you know, when they first had the Hubble telescope, and it was up in space and they realized like, oh, uh, all the images that are coming back are blurry. We need to kind of go do, do a couple tweaks. And once they finally fixed um, those issues with it, all of a sudden they were, they were getting back these crystal clear images of, of beautiful constellations and, and stars and everything up in space. And it's somewhat similar when, when we're doing some, uh, some structural biology on, on various enzymes. It's kind of struggle, struggle, struggle until you, you kind of get the right conditions and then all of a sudden everything will lock into place. And now you have this crystal clear image of, of this molecule that is almost incomprehensibly small, but now all of a sudden you can see it. And how do you see it? How did you get the breakthrough? That's part of the, the frustration of science, but then also part of, of the beauty of it as well is that 
you can work on something for a really long time. Once you finally do make that breakthrough, uh, it, it kind of makes all of that struggle worthwhile. When you're working with, with the protein, you, you know, you can't see it with your own eyes. It's, it's, it's extremely small. Like we're talking nanometers in size. Like, you know, if you think of, of uh, human hair, we're orders of magnitude smaller than the width of a human hair when it comes to, when it comes to protein. But there are tools and techniques that are available that allow us to potentially uh, see what that protein looks like at the molecular level. And one of the main techniques that, that I use in my lab is X-ray crystallography. X-ray crystallography. I made a joke about it at the start. It's not really household terminology. I'm assuming it's just a fancy way of getting an image of the enzyme once it has taken a crystallized form. Is that right? Exactly. It's a very fancy way to do those models we used to make in chemistry in high school with like sticks and Play-Doh. You basically do an X-ray of the enzyme and see things you've never seen before. So I asked Chris, what does he see at that point? Because it sounds like it is the exact point where the truth is revealed about these enzymes. The eureka moment is when um, you get this diffraction pattern that all of a sudden you can, you can see the electron density of an enzyme. Uh, once you finally do crack it and you get a really strong and well-resolved diffraction pattern, you can do a little bit of mathematics on it that allows you to all of a sudden instantly see the structure of that enzyme at the molecular level. I can always remember every time that, that I've done that for any protein that, that I've solved the structure of. That's so exciting. How does that feel? Anytime you make a discovery in science, that's what drives you. There's different levels of discoveries that you can make. And, you know, you, sometimes you can set an experiment up and, and you get the expected result and it's good. Um, but every now and then you can make a discovery where you realize that we are the first people to understand this out of anybody in the world. I've been fortunate enough to have a handful of those types of, of discoveries in, in, in my career that, you know, I can always kind of remember where I was for each one of those. And in, in particular for, for this case, um, we had been struggling a little bit in, in trying to identify this enzyme. And, and we had finally, you know, we thought, all right, we've gotten everything figured out here. And we set our reaction up and uh, let it go overnight. And we ran it on, a, on the machine the next day. And the result was kind of as clear as day. And we knew, okay, here we can see the starting product. Now we've treated it with our enzyme. It's converted it into the end product. This is doing exactly what we're expecting it to do. That allowed us to kind of, uh, you know, fully appreciate the, the potential impacts that this enzyme might have later on. What are the benefits of using enzymes rather than some chemical means of decontaminating the DDGS? They're very cost effective in terms of their ability to decontaminate uh, food and feed. And that's because when you have an enzyme, it's very good at kind of doing that reaction over and over and over again. And so you only need to add a very small amount of an enzyme in order to clean what could potentially be very large amounts of toxin that are present in solution. And so it's always interesting in talking to, to people who uh, who maybe aren't as educated in terms of the biochemistry of some of these tools uh, and letting them know that just a very small amount of protein or enzyme um, can have a very big effect on the end product of the food or feed that we're trying to treat. And so in this case, with the one enzyme that we have found, it's very specific for the particular mycotoxin 
um, that we're interested in, in converting into a less toxic form. And we don't have to worry about this enzyme targeting other types of molecules um, that are present within those food or feed samples uh, because the enzyme has evolved to be very specific for this one toxin that we're interested in. So we can use low amounts, very small amounts of this enzyme, which makes it economically feasible um, to uh, detoxify very large amounts of, of either contaminated food or feed. This sort of work can take years, from tests to trials to commercialization. Where are you at with this project? So we're, we're working with, with our industrial partners to, to test uh, our various enzyme candidates out in their production systems. And so they're checking to see if it's going to be feasible to actually make this enzyme within Saccharomyces, which is the yeast that they use for, for fermentation and, and bioethanol production. And if so, can it be produced to a high enough level so that um, it's actually going to be effective in, in detoxifying contaminated feed? Um, in terms of kind of a, a, an end date where we will know, is it, is it, are we going to have a commercial product? We're not sure. Uh, hopefully within, you know, a, a couple of years of, of rigorous testing and, and understanding what are the best conditions for this enzyme to, to function at, a, at an industrial scale. This type of research takes time, but this discovery of this specific enzyme has quite a lot of potential. Like so many things in agriculture and food, there's this domino effect. Yes, it detoxifies the corn, and when it's scaled up, we're talking about saving waste, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. There are potential money savings too at a couple of different levels. And all of those benefits far outweigh the time put into the research. Sounds like we need to follow up with them for another episode and maybe speak with the industrial partners too. Yes, and in the meantime, we're working on some great episodes. We'll be speaking about and with the young, dynamic next generation of producers, food processors, and innovators of our sectors. And we're going to be speaking with a couple of leading women about how the role of women is evolving in our sector. The youth, the women, all of them, agents of change. And if anyone has any idea or questions, they could use hashtag the first 16 on the social media to get in touch with us. And in the meantime, you know what to do. I certainly do. Try something new.